Welcome back to episode number 221 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is a podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we have back on the podcast, Terry McDonald, Sales and Business Development Manager with Thorne and Derek, based out of the UK. Terry, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me again, Chris, and good to be back. Thanks for uh, asking me to do a follow-up. Well, it's an important topic. We covered last time we had you on the show, on episode 216. Uh, the title was Looking Out for Fake Atex Products and Certificates. We had a really interesting discussion, and you can get access to that episode at dustsafetyscience.com slash 216. Be the show notes and the recording to the episode there. Or if you're in your podcast player, just go back and listen to that one. It's probably a good thing to listen to before you listen to this episode, because this is a follow-up. So in 216, we talked about how combustible dust is treated within ATEX, the ATEX framework, how certification and ATEX product certification specifically is supposed to work, how fake ATEX products and certificates make it into the market. And we closed out mentioning that Terry would be presenting on this topic at the Hazard X conference, which has since happened, if you're listening to this, um, it happened March 1st and March 2nd of 2023, but it had not happened before when we recorded the podcast episode. So the thought process was we had a really good episode about that topic. Terry was going to go present it at Hazard X and then come back and report on what kind of questions and discussions that come out of that topic because it turns out quite a bit of feedback came back. And that's what we're going to be discussing about in today's episode. So Terry, we covered your background, what you do in industry and that in the last episode. So I'll direct people to that for what you do. But kind of to get into this episode, can you just review what you shared and covered at the Hazard X conference and what kind of presentation you did? Well, HazardX is a process safety conference and exhibition. Uh, HazardX themselves champion best practice and safety uh, within the explosive atmosphere industry. So you've got delegates that are involved heavily in the explosive atmosphere industry attending the event. So my presentation was on the topic of fake ATEX equipment and certificates the consequences of using such equipment, but also on how we all in the industry have to take our share of the responsibility to try and stamp out the the problem and raise awareness as well of the problem. And uh, the presentation gave some specific examples of products and manufacturers that were and are using fraudulent certificates to get their products into the marketplace. And so... This episode today, the point is really to come back and do a follow-up or give feedback on what kind of discussions you had during the presentation at the event. How would you like to, to go through this material? What's the best way to kind of sift through the, the insights that you gained? Since we had our original podcast, my research continues. I was uh, provided with some information regarding a notified body based out in Italy called ECM. They have on their website a section for fraudulent certificates that they are aware of in the marketplace. I'm sure you'll add the link to the podcast. So you can go on their website and they have taken the time to upload a database of fraudulent certificates in the marketplace. ECM are a notified body for and can test conformity assessment to, to several different standards, not just the ATEX directive. So there was probably hundreds, if not thousands of fraudulent certificates out there in the global marketplace. But when you extract the ATEX specific certificates, there was 37 certificates that were out in the marketplace. 
a little further research and there are a give or take 77 notified bodies in Europe who have the ability to test for conformity assessment to the ATEX equipment directive. Using that, and I said this in the presentation, but the numbers are a little loose. But if you say 37 certificates for every notified body, you're quickly up to 3,000 potential certificates in the marketplace. And then I use the example that if every certificate sold 100 products, up to 300,000 potential products in the marketplace. But if, if, you, if you multiply that by 1,000 products for every certificate, you're potentially talking about 3 million products in the marketplace. And it was an eye-opener to have hard evidence of these fake equipment. As we said last time, Chris, I've had lots of people have reached out to me and have given me examples of fake equipment, not just fake equipment, but fake competency certificates, fake and out-of-date QAN documents and QAR documents. But very few people were prepared to name and shame the companies that they they were aware of for fear of litigation or legal proceedings. But this website names them, and I, I won't name them. I won't name the companies on the podcast because I don't. I wouldn't want you to um, sure. get into any unnecessary trouble. But all the information is publicly available on on ECM's website. There was examples of companies selling mobile telephones, uh, companies selling lighting, a company selling air conditioning, a company selling CCTV and enclosure equipment. So of the 37 certificates, there was probably nine different companies on there and they were all using fraudulent or multiple fraudulent certificates to sell their, sell their products. It was an eye-opener, I think, and it's certainly the feedback that I've had from doing the presentation is that people know that this problem exists but perhaps don't know to what extent. So what I'd like to touch on when we spoke uh, previously, the different uh, stakeholders in this industry and the different companies and uh, types of company that are interested, and I'm referring to notified bodies have an interest, end users have an interest, EPCs and contractors have an interest, and, and distributors and resale companies like ourselves have, a, have an interest. There was a gentleman in the audience from SBM Offshore he came to me at the end of the presentation and had a chat and he was the, uh, let me try and get this right, his, his job title was Asset Integrity Subject Matter Expert for Hazardous Area Equipment or Explosive Atmosphere Regulations. Whilst all of the discussion centred around ATEX and European directives, SBM don't actually have any of their vessels operating in European waters. So they have to adhere to whatever directive, wherever the ship is originally built or where it's destined for. He nodded all the way through the presentation. And then when I spoke to him at the end, I understood why. And he, he really concurred that it was a huge issue. And he had seen some horrendous problems and installations. He said, he, an example that he gave me, which will, uh, should scare anyone out there, he uh, was inspecting some equipment on, a, on one of the vessels and he, he said there was half a dozen junction boxes all next to each other, all looked different. They were all GRP and they were all certified as EXD flame proof, 2C to hydrogen and T6. So pretty much as safe as, as you can get in, in the hazardous area industry. 
I suppose you could have get Zone Zero certified equipment, but that's few and far between. It's obvious to anyone who knows EXD and Flameproof that there was no way that these junction boxes could be. But but the manufacturer had taken upon themselves to label the junction boxes all with the same certification, EPL markings. And it was immediately obvious that it was it couldn't possibly be true and therefore it was fake equipment. And he did say that he sees it he sees it a lot. And he, he's offered to help me and do whatever he can to help spread this word and spread the message. So that was that was from an end user. And obviously SBM, I'm sure you're aware of them. I'm sure your listeners will have heard of SBM offshore. There have a lot of vessels being built out in Chinese shipyards, but it's a huge issue. And it's how how do they they stop it? And again, uh, perhaps later on in the podcast, we can talk about some of the solutions for him to come and, and talk and, and confirm. It went on from there and we've, we've um, spoke to other people, other end users who again, perhaps know it's an issue, but don't know the extent of the issue, which the presentation did give enough examples to show that it is a real issue. Yeah, so I got a, I got a couple of pieces here I wanna pull out. So the, the how we're gonna proceed for the rest of this episode, I think it's gonna go through perspectives of these different discussions you had, and we're gonna talk about notified bodies, and users, yeah. distributors or resellers like yourselves, or EPC contractors. Those are sort of the four categories that we're going to talk about as these, as we go through the episode. I do want to, and and you mentioned some background, which I'm going to cover in a second. You mentioned you had some really high level confirmation of what you were seeing from other companies that would be requiring a lot of ATEX equipment to be installed and seeing the issues with global coverage on building in different regions of the world and needing requirements in different other regions of the world. And that was sort of the example you gave with the offshore company. The background piece, and I want to—I really want to highlight this, and I'll try to summarize my notes of, of what I heard you say, so that the audience gets this information as well. And that is the the notified body out of Italy. So this is ECM, which is yes. probably some Italian word, but if you go to e n t e c e r m a dot i t, that is their website. Uh, otherwise, go to our show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash the number two, number two, number one. Um, we'll have links to this there. So that's their website, and on there, there's a a list under customer area right now for forged documents and improper use of ECM notified body certificates. And in there, they have a list of the certificates that they're aware of. I believe this is their only their own certificates. Is that correct, Terry? Not other, That's right, just yeah, their own yeah. certificates. So you can download that list and it is 60 pages long. I just did some quick math. I guess there's 15 certificates list per page. And now I lost my math. So that's somewhere 600, 900. Yeah. So that's, let's yeah. say a thousand certificates are, are listed in this document that ECM knows are invalid certificates that are listed with their certification. Terry's saying he parsed through these or has worked with somebody else who has parsed through these. 37 of these thousand are ATEC specific. And if you multiply that again by the fact there's around 80 plus notified bodies out there, you come up with that number that you're talking about, that 3,000 faith certificates or we'll call them invalid certificates that are out there. And then your estimate where you came up with, okay, well, they each sell one or a hundred pieces of equipment to a thousand pieces of equipment. We're looking at in the hundreds of thousands of equipment out there to millions of equipment out there that are yeah. in operation or yeah, we'll say in operation or being sold today that have invalid certificates just to give an idea of the scope of the problem. 
DustX Research Limited, Dust Safety Science, all of our companies have not independently verified any of the names on this list. So I just want to put that out there as a disclaimer. And that's why we're not naming the companies that are involved. But it is important to have discussions around this and to be honest, to get those companies involved's names out there, which we're happy that the Italian notified body ECM is doing that. So I encourage you to go to dustsafetyscience.com slash 221. You can go to the ECM website. You can pick up that list of invalid certificates that they have. Uh, if you want to get some idea, and, or probably a faster way is just to email Terry. We'll have his contact information um, in the show notes of this episode and have a discussion with him about it. I'm sure he's happy to to share what he's learned and share the information that he's learning. So that's some of the background, the scope, how how big this problem is. I want to get into the different perspectives, but even before we do that, Terry, let's use a couple million as the the products that are in the market that have um, yep. invalid certificates. Um, we talked about this last time that there's there's different levels of this challenge, right? This ATEX product and certificate. There's knowingly forging a fake certificate. Then there's having a correct certificate and misrepresenting it, either knowingly or unknowingly. And then there's a bunch of gray area in between. And then there's, yeah, and then there's like, you know, you installed something you thought was certified for a certain type of use for a different type of like. So the point I'm trying to make is that even though we we can identify a couple million piece of equipment that might be out there under invalid certificates, the problem is actually much bigger, like probably by an order of 10, at least maybe 100, because you have all these certificates that maybe have correct, valid certificates that are used in incorrect ways, either unknowingly or knowingly. I don't think we need to go down that track again today because we talked about it quite extensively last week. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I am very conscious now when I'm talking about the topic is to differentiate between what I consider to be fraudulent and criminal against somebody just getting it wrong the certificate's incorrect it hasn't been assessed to all of the relevant or the sh- all of the standards that it should have been tested to for conformity the numbers that i've mentioned there just based on that one notified body is is fraudulent certificates we spoke about the different people involved chris in, or who have an interest and in, touch a little bit further in that so a distributor one of the companies uh, that appeared on the list, uh, I think, seven times, uh, seven different certificates. It was a mobile phone company. And again, I won't name them, but I, I'm, I'll happily share it with anybody and, and, and point them in the direction. Now, this mobile phone company has contacted Thorne and Derek at least three times in the last 12 months to try and sell us mobile phones and, and appoint us as a, a potential distributor to sell these mobile phones in the UK. So I use this as an example in the presentation. Somebody put the hand up in the audience and it was another distributor of mobile phones and they knew straight away and said that they come in, bump into this company uh, several times and they, they know because they're being impacted commercially that they know that this company is selling mobile phones with fraudulent certificates and that they shouldn't be able to do that. But obviously, obviously there are people are, are believing what they are being told by the manufacturer. And that, um, I know we spoke about the, the portable ventilation fan in the last episode, and that's how we are impacted commercially as a company in the, the fake uh, fan and fake certificate that is out, out there for the portable uh, ventilation fan. Again, they come to see me um, after the event and thank me for uh, raising awareness uh, to the audience and, and said it was a, again, agreed it was a, it was a big problem. The fan that we mentioned last time, 
which has now been on my radar since I think 2020, uh, recalled by the HSE in November 21. I found another HSE recall on same manufacturer's fan, but slightly different model in May 2022. I've since had the manufacturer, forgive me, I might have mentioned this in the last podcast, but the manufacturer from China has contacted us to try and sell us the fan because they've seen it on our website, even though what's on our website is a safety notice about the recall. And I've asked them to then send me the declaration of conformity and the uh, certificate, which they did. They also sent me the QAN document, which was out of date. More worryingly, there was a that the fan is now available on. I won't name the company again, but on a tool hire UK-based company company's website, and they are selling this fan as portable ATEX certified ventilation fan. Again, I used it in the presentation, and I've got, I believe, this company to be in the UK to be a victim of fraud as opposed to knowingly selling fake equipment. Um, so I have reached out to them with the, all the information I've got on this fan and asked them if they, um, well, I expect them that they'll remove it from their right. their website. I have to say I've checked today and they haven't removed it yet. And it's two weeks ago since I um, wrote to them. I'll, I'll certainly follow that up. But yeah, that distri- distributors trust what they are being told. In fact, just today, speaking to a colleague who here at Thorne and Derek, who'd found a product that fitted our portfolio, an Atex water heater, of which we used to sell, but the manufacturer discontinued them due to the low volume of sales. Not a huge demand out there for them. He'd found a manufacturer that claimed to be selling them. And I looked at it, and I, and I don't know yet, and I'm going to do some more research today and after this. But on paper, again, it, it looks like it can't possibly be certified in the way that they are claiming it's certified. And I would question straight away whether it's a self-certified product or whether it is a, a fake certified product. But there are obviously manufacturers out there that are willing to commit fraud and distributors become the victim. That said, a distributor should take their do and take their due diligence seriously to stop this equipment coming in and stop the equipment getting onto the marketplace. That's we're just one part of the yep. solution, problem and the solution being the distributor. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for the examples there. I want to I want to get into these different perspectives of the people that you spoke with on this topic because I think it's kind of interesting. This this will be an ongoing. I mean, this isn't going away anytime soon. It's growing, and with Terry's efforts and others, hopefully we can kind of get the education component out there and reduce the impact. It was interesting to get these different perspectives. So the first group you kind of mentioned that you talked to at the event were some notified bodies themselves. Did you speak with ECM specifically or were they at the Hazard X conference? No, ECM weren't at the... No, okay. Well, so this isn't ECM's is the reason I want to mention. This isn't ECM's viewpoint. You talked to some other notified bodies. What were they saying about these? During the presentation, again, somebody put the hand up in the audience and introduced themselves as a DNV representative. It was a DNV certificate that I used in the presentation as an example of a fake certificate for the ventilation fund that we spoke about. He was aware of the product and the certificate and the issue. And then we had a chat later on in the evening. He came to speak to me. Again, they know it's an issue. They do what they can to prevent it, but... The prevent trying to prevent companies who are, in my eyes, criminals, 
the one thing that we discussed really was how easy it is for a notified body to become aware of the fake certificate. So what's the time lag between the product being out in the marketplace to the notified body becoming aware? And then once they do become aware, what can they do about it? Go back to the fan as the example. We've been aware now of this fake certificate for almost three years. Yeah. And that certificate has been in different uh, disguises, but always as company related. And so it was Nemco originally, which were now part of DNV, and then PreSafe, which is, is part of DNV. What can the notified bodies do once they do become aware of it? So ECM, I think, provide a good example in that they list the the fraudulent documents on their website. But I discussed with the DNV representatives, that's such a time-consuming method to find out if a certificate is fraudulent or not. Some of the notified bodies do have search functions on their website, which allow you to go on and search for the certificate to check for, which then would allow you in theory to check that it's legitimate uh, and in date and valid. But speaking to DNV, I questioned it with them. I find their own search tool difficult. Uh, to use, and, and I say not not difficult to use, but uh, the database doesn't seem to work like a search engine or like a database should in that there's certificates that I know to be correct I can't find. And when I was looking for what I know to be fake, the certificate's not there, but it doesn't. there's nothing there to say that it's fake or that they're aware that it's fake. And again, speaking to the guys at DNV, they accepted that some of these database and search engines on the notified bodies websites aren't necessarily uh, easy to use and straightforward for the end user or the contractor or the purchaser of this equipment. We ended up going on to discussions and I keep going back to this and during the event, we kept going back to it as well. Um, IECX has an, an international database which is easy to access for everyone to go on and check for the validity of a certificate. So I think with one quick brushstroke, the ATEX side of the industry, the ATEX certificates, if ATEX would bring something like that into our, into Europe to copy what IECX do, that would quickly enable lots of people to find out if a certificate is is valid and, and, and is correct. I, I did ask DNV and I asked other people while I met at the event, and I still haven't had anyone tell me a good reason why ATEX don't do that. And I would put that out as a question to anyone listening to this. Can somebody please tell me why we don't have a database, a centralized database of ATEX certificates? Why do we not follow the IECX route? In fact, Chris, what do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, about uh, about eight minutes ago, I wrote down we need a common approach to validate certificates <laughs> before you yep. before you brought it up um, on my notepad here. So that's uh, I mean, that sounds like a, a good solution. The, the the reason why it's it's um, time, effort, and money. I'm sure it it goes in one of those. But with the time, effort, and money, and somebody to drive the initiative that can drive the initiative, so leadership. But um, you have the heretic that drives leadership that that can't make the change and, and just talks about it. And uh, you may be the heretic, Terry, I don't know. <laughs> or you could have somebody <laughs> that has leadership to be a bill actually able to drive that change. Um, and then it's about acknowledging that's not going to be an overnight thing. It's going to take X number of years to get the certificates that are out there now into that system. But it can be done if there's a model that 
uh, shows that it can be done with IECX, then it's just a matter of figuring, okay, how, how, how do we make that happen? Um, but yeah, I mean, a common way to validate certificates sounds like the right way to go. It certainly is easier than keeping a list of, of um, I mean, you know, talk about time, expense, and, and money. Trying to keep a list of all the fake certificates is is, an, is a fool's errand, right? Because it's it's an infinite game. There, as every every new certificate, it's like whack a mole. You'd have to you'd have to go and audit them. It might be a controversial statement to some people, but I think there's a quicker route to fix the problem, and I think it would be to abolish ATEX, adopt IECX as our accepted standard accept the international standard the, the system already exists we don't we don't need to create a a new database most or a lot of the i'm going to say the better manufacturers and the international manufacturers tend to have dual certification anyway atex and iecx and perhaps other certificates depending on the regions of the world where they're selling and so just for someone who's naive like myself, so ATEX would just cover Europe, but somebody yes. who has that same equipment that wants to sell it in, um, I don't know, Kazakhstan or somewhere else that's not in Europe, would get it certified through IECX and then would have that certificate including the IECX database. Is that is that correct? If the country had adopted IECX, so Kazakhstan may, use, may accept IECX, but Kazakhstan has its own... Uh, certification scheme, uh, scheme, which is EACEX, which is the Eurasian Conformity for Hazardous Areas. I'll use Australia as an example because they really have bought into and they do adopt IECEX. Okay. If we abolished ATEX and adopted IECEX, then in fairness, there was a few people in the room. We, we had a conversation at the end and some question and answers. And yeah, was everyone happy with that idea, Terry? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there was, a, there was almost a general nod of approval and almost a chuckle. That really is the simple, the simple answer. We'll have people listen to this. And, and like I encourage people to, to, to come to Terry's event there or Terry's presentation at the Hazard X event. Um, email me. Uh, Terry's information will be in this episode as well. So email him and just let him know what you think about this. If there's other knock-on effects of, that would need to be considered, um, keep that discussion going. I don't mind. I mean, we get... We get we get yelled at sometimes. That's okay. People send me emails about stuff that we missed or not included or misrepresented or or not, and and that's that's fine. That's why we have a, a global podcast to have discussion around these topics because there aren't often easy answers. So please feel free if you have a stick in the fight or something in this, and then send that information through, and and it'd be great to continue the discussion on it. Terry, I think we talked through the notified bodies piece and some solutions there, are pretty yeah. good. Let's, let's switch to the end users. What are they saying about this challenge that they have? So we spoke about SBM Offshore and the gentleman that was kind enough to come and give me some feedback and, and confirm. So there's, that's certainly one example of the uh, end user. Uh, my intention is to continue to raise awareness. I will be running some webinars later in the year and we'll be opening inviting an invite to all. But we're also sending invites to some of the larger uh, EPCs and uh, contractors who we know are heavily involved in the hazardous area industry. So the opportunity uh, came quite quickly to, um, we were speaking to Jacobs regarding some hazardous area lighting designs that we are, that we are doing for them. And during the meeting, uh, I mentioned the presentation and the fake certificates, and um, they asked me if I would send some information. And I was really quite... Um, 
I'm shocked, if I'm honest, how quickly they came back and said, yes, we want to do this. The presentation was on Monday and a week week prior to that, we, we first suggested it to Jacobs. They run it internally through the Jacobs team that we were talking to, which is the non-nuclear engineering team in Jacobs. And I'm sure we have lots of people listening. I'll know Jacobs as a, as, a, as a company, but for anyone who doesn't, Jacobs are a very large EPC organization who work on a global basis employ uh, thousands of uh, people. They asked actually if they could extend the invite to people outside of their immediate team. And and I was really impressed that we had 40, 45 people come along to the, we did it on Teams and we had 45 people come along to the presentation. I was a little nervous um, that people perhaps wouldn't come or they would sign in and, and and then leave. But we still had 42 people on the call at the end of the call. We, we put some question and answers out there, which in fairness, using teams when you've got that many people involved isn't necessarily straightforward. Uh, but the, the person that did, did pass comment and question at the end was the head of health and safety for Jacobs, who thanked me for raising the awareness. He was surprised at how, how deep the problem is and how wide the problem is. And what he took away from it was the solution that these EPCs such as Jacobs don't necessarily assess their supply chain for competency in hazardous area equipment or in in, in understanding of the hazardous area regulations. And he was going to go away and check and perhaps make some changes internally so that they do assess specifically competency levels of their supply chain for this type of equipment. I think that's another thing that's helped solve this problem and would prevent incompetent companies from supplying such equipment because it's them that don't know and understand the regulations that they can't question uh, or don't have the knowledge to question what they are being told by fraudulent manufacturers or even going back to being able to question a certificate which is legitimate, it's just incorrect. I think you mentioned this last time, so you're talking about assessing the competency of your supply chain, the, the folks that are providing you uh, the equipment. Um, yes. You mentioned last time about sort of integrating this into the front end process, and I can't think of what the name would be. But when you're when you're when you're evaluating your suppliers, I think there's like a standard uh, procedure that you'd follow or something where you'd integrate this in. What did you call this last time? I don't have it in front of me. But for a lot of the larger organizations that we work with, we have to go through these vendor approval assessments. Um, they'll typically be done before you are permitted to sell that company products. And they'll want to know information about our financial, the number of people that work here, the type of equipment that we sell. They'll then want to know uh, more details about our policies, uh, health and safety policies, safe working practices, they always go into cybersecurity, anti-bribery and corruption and all of, all of that kind of thing, which is all fine, but never do, never, I'm saying never, I don't think I've ever read an AVL document which specifically asks Thorne and Derek to prove their competency or knowledge in hazardous area equipment. We may have to provide some examples of projects that we've worked on or cli- other clients that we have supplied but that doesn't prove that we're competent in hazardous area equipment. Or it's certainly not easy for the customer, the EPC, the contractor, the end user, to take that and think and see evidence that 
accept that as evidence that we are competent. I'd like to think Thorne and Derek are competent. Well, we are competent, more competent than a lot of other companies out there. Well, I was going to ask that question. So say say we do have an end user that would like to do that, or a contractor in this case, but, but both have the same challenge where they need to evaluate the the level of expertise of the information they're receiving, so the competency of the provider or or so on. How how would say we had that um, section of this approved vendor process? What should it say to to evaluate the competency? Can and it's a big question. I don't expect necessarily you know the answer. What what are some things that a company should be checking to, or could be checking? We'll say to to verify this. I think we have to go another step further and have a, a scheme that proves competency. So in the UK, they have a complex scheme for people working and carrying out installations and commissioning with inside hazardous area environments. So you have to go through that training and you get a certificate at the end of it from Compex. And then that's accepted as an industry uh, standard that you are competent as a person and therefore can carry out certain works in the hazardous area. I think that should be extended to companies like Thorne and Derek in the supply chain so that we can go and carry out the training if necessary and we can then prove our competency by having the certificates to back that up. But right now, there's nothing out there formally which makes it easy easy to learn, to educate and to train, but to prove competency levels. Yeah, and I'm just looking up because you're, you're bringing some discussions out on the podcast before. I'm looking at it, it's it was episode twenty, so that's two hundred episodes ago. So that's four years ago. Um, we had a, a really good discussion with Arpad Vares from EXBN, EXNB rather, uh, certificate EXNB certificate certification institute out of Hungary, and he had talked about this X certification requirement of equipment and personnel, but also that they I don't know if it's part of their scheme or explicitly, but I remember in the discussion and. Keep in mind, this was four years ago. Um, that he he had a very big part of of the the interview and discussion there, if I remember correctly, was on how do we give this competency to um, equipment providers. And he was actually he showed me some pictures and stuff of him having a room of equipment providers where they're doing this training so that they can understand, hey, this is what your equipment needs to do. These are also the reasons. If if it doesn't do this, you know, this is how it can go wrong and providing some sort of um, competency assessment to people that are providing equipment. So it's probably time, it's been four years since that episode, it's probably time to get um, him or, yeah, probably get Arpad back on to talk about that topic again. I think that's sort of what you're talking about. Now, I believe they were doing it informally, um, but what you're talking about is having a formalized system within Compex or some sort of scheme that that includes this, this component of resellers of equipment, I guess we'd call it. That's the the category we're looking for. Probably all, right? We need we need the people to build it, the people that that resell and distribute, it, and the people that put it in. But those are some gaps that are missing in the current competency set. I mentioned this last time as well, Chris. But the, the those competency levels should also be that knowledge and expertise and proof of competency should also be possible to put into the people purchasing the equipment, and they should perhaps have to prove their competency before they are, are allowed to purchase any of this equipment. And I know I went on to talk about that a little bit last time, but the amount of time, honestly, the the amount of times we receive phone calls from customers wanting to buy hazardous area equipment and they really don't have a clue what a hazardous area is. They're just following instructions 
to go out and find a piece of equipment and they use Google and they find us or they find somebody else and you ask them, does it need to be certified for zone one or zone two or 21 or 22? Is it a gas or a dust atmosphere? And they really don't, they don't know. And it's, it's not like they're ringing up asking for a specific part number that an engineer perhaps has specified and have said, go and buy this piece of equipment. They've been told to go out and buy a portable, I'm again going to go back to the fan, but go and buy a portable ventilation fan that's suitable for, that has an ATEC certificate. And then off they go and they go and find one online and then they buy it, but they don't have a clue or don't understand what they are purchasing. Yeah, it's, I think we we might have a role to play here too because I mean we try to do that within our our area of Comsey, which is not, you know, which is not hazardous area certainly within international countries and within Europe. But we do run dust safety professionals with sort of the same goal, right? It's like if you have a question, you need to connect with somebody to do work in your area, to do testing, to provide equipment more on dust collection and explosion protection side than than the kind of equipment we're talking about today. Then, then we hope you just find us professionals and make a request there. And then we kind of, you know, see where you're at in your journey for combustible dust, give you some ideas and then hand you off to the right company to support you in that journey. Some sort of, and so maybe this is something we need to put into our system. So if somebody's looking for ATEX equipment, then they can find us professionals. And then we send them off to companies like Thorne Derrick or others that we know are meeting some minimum level of, of requirement in verification in in competency and that sort of thing so I, d- I don't know i'll have a think about how we may play a role in this in the future as well terry we're all involved in the industry we all i think most of us or all of us who uh, want everyone to go home safe at night they want we want to stop and prevent accidents from happening that ultimately can result in certainly a loss and damage to property and infrastructure but worst case scenario people people get killed that's what we've we've all got to come together if we can and think of a way that we can stop stop fake equipment but improve best practice as well uh, going off on tangents but i think i'll i'll i think we're probably coming close to the end of this episode because it's been interesting discussion but i'll leave off of one point and then i'll let you reply back to it because i think it's going to cover sort of you know a good closing remark and then we'll close this one out but my point is the whole way you've been you've been talking about this um, especially on the the naming companies, name, blame, shame, that sort of thing, um, and yep. the inability to do that, right or wrong. And there's 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 challenges with with that that I don't want to necessarily get into. But what I want to say is, anything that inhibits communication about the problem is going to fundamentally reduce the perceived size of the problem. So in this case that we're talking about here today, the the fact that we don't name companies and the fact that we don't, and we're guilty of it too, we, we can't do it because we haven't independently verified the companies and there's 37 and thousand certificates, so we, we just can't do it. But so that inability to communicate effectively about this challenge um, drives the perception that it's smaller than it probably actually is. And the point I want to make here is that's the exact same challenge we have with combustible dust. <laughs> so because we don't name incidents and companies and loss when they happen, that that hampers the communication lines about combustible dust in general. And then when you look around, you don't see any issue and you downplay how frequent and how severe dust explosions actually are. Yeah. So if you work in a site, you know, and so that's that communication gap is what we're trying to clear with this podcast. We obviously haven't fixed all of it, 
But, you know, with the podcast, the conference you run, Dust Safety Academy, Dust Safety Professionals, that's the whole goal is to get more effective communication so we can realize this. If you're working at a site, and I'll give a real example. If you're working at a wood pellet site in North America, let's not use wood pellets. They've had a they've had a, a busy couple of years with combustible dust. Let's say, um, see, I, I I have the curse of the curse of communication knowledge. So let's just pick an industry um, that makes I don't know strand board. It's probably not another good example, but say you're working a strand board site, and your only frame of reference is your site. And you haven't experienced loss since you've been working there. You've been working there eight years, never had a fire, never had an explosion. You know, you're going to automatically assume that it can never happen here. Now, if you expand your perception to the state, well, once you have a strain board site in your state have a large loss, then you're going to go, oh, shoot, well, this can happen here. They operate the same as me. <laughs> if you expand to the country, it'll be the same thing. If you expand your communication frame to the world, well, guess what? I mean, I can find this year several strand board facilities that I've experienced, certainly fires, um, and probably a couple that have experienced dust explosion loss as well that operate the exact same as that first facility that we're talking about. So it's just the ineffective communication hampered by things like the inability to name, litigious, being nervous about being sued. I said that to you before the podcast on this. So yeah. like all yeah. those things that hamper communication drive the perceived frequency and the perceived severity of these type of hazards or this type of invalid certificates hitting the market problem. So then that's a, like, that's the solution or that's part of the solution is to improve the communication, which is what we're trying to do here today. So I don't know, that was a, a big topic to unload on you at the end of the podcast, Terry, but any closing words on, on this topic of communication, how it minimizes the problem? I, I got asked at the end of the presentation, how do we report fake certificates? Or if we believe something to be fake, and I had to be honest and say, I don't know. Yep. I don't actually know the right channels to go through to report a fake uh, certificate. And obviously those channels will be different here in the UK and obviously different everywhere else in the world, which again, makes communication difficult. I'd just like to thank you, Chris, for asking me back on and giving me another chance to spread awareness on the topic and hopefully other people listening can, can help and can continue, feel free to get in touch with ideas on how we can improve or point me in the direction of other organisations, uh, bodies that I should possi possibly be speaking to. What I will have to conclude with is this isn't my day job. My day job is a salesman here at Thorne and Derek. So I don't have, whilst I sometimes feel like a one-man crusade on this subject, I don't, I don't have the time. Um, to probably be the focal point and do it, do it complete justice. We need people like you, Chris, and other people in the industry to to help. So yeah, I'd like to say thank you to you for letting me back on. Well, hundred percent, and thank you, Terry. Um, I I don't think this will be the last time we'll have you on. Don't even think it's gonna be the last time we have you on about this topic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so my guess is this will be an ongoing discussion. Like I said, it's only gonna grow um, in our our need to have effective communication to. Um, I mean, our mission is one year zero fatalities worldwide from dust explosions. We don't do that. That's not going to happen. Hasn't happened in the last hundred years, um, or even farther back. But we we verified it hasn't happened in the last hundred years. That's not going to happen without effective communication. <laughs> so that's why we're trying to do uh, this communication piece of the puzzle to try to help sort this out. Uh, so I want to say thank you to you as well, Terry. Thank you for coming on again. Um, and 
I look forward to our next chance to talk about this and, and, and other topics related to uh, explosion safety. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Thanks, Terry. Talk soon. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and Terry McDonald, Sales and Business Development Manager with Thorne & Derek, based out of the UK. Uh, and we've done a follow-up here on this topic of fake ATEX products and certificates or fake ATEX equipment and certificates. might be a better, a better name for it, but we're stuck with the product because that's what we called it. Um, and this is a follow-up of a podcast episode we did, um, looks like five weeks ago, on ATEX products and certificates. So in that previous episode, we covered how combustible dust is treated within ATEX, um, how the certification process is supposed to work for ATEX-rated equipment, how fake certificates and products make their way to the market. And this is a follow-on discussion after a presentation that Terry gave at the Hazard X conference in the UK, covering some of the feedback, discussion, vocal points that he had at that event on this topic. Um, we gave some really good background in terms of the size of the problem. And we talked about just this one notified body in Italy publishing its list of fake certificates that it knows that are in its name. Um, and that list being 60 pages long. And <laughs> we'll have a we'll have a list, a link to that in the show notes at dustcityscience.com slash two two one. Um looking at that list, there were 37 on that list that covered ATEX products. And kind of coming up with the math and doing the back mendable calculation, you're looking at hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of products that would be out there with these type of cert these type of invalid forged fake certificates, whatever kind of wording you want to use there. So that's the, the scope, probably bigger than what you thought coming into the podcast episode, certainly bigger than what I thought when I was first estimating this. We covered different perspectives that Terry came across at the, the conference, including notified bodies, including end users, including resellers and distributors, um, including other folks that uh, are in this area, contractors and the like and examples. And we covered it. We had a couple of kind of things that came out. One is having some sort of common approach to validate certificates would help the process. Right now, there is a, a, a movement, I guess, to publish fake certificates, which is really helpful too. But it's a, it's a never-ending game because every time a new certificate comes out, you need to find that, do the market surveillance, get that in and get that published. Having some way to independently verify your certificates would be a step forward in this. And, and Terry and I talked about some ways to do that in this podcast episode. And we also talked about some way to assess the competency of the folks that are um, providing equipment to the market. It could be directly, like they are the OEM, or it could be indirectly as a reseller distributor, some way to, and even on the purchasing side, having some way to verify competency of the people that are buying the products and putting them into the market. Uh, we had a number of topics that we wanted to talk about that we didn't get to um, in this episode. Things like what role is hazard analysis playing here? Like, uh, DCER requirements in the UK, as hazard analysis requirements here in North America, um, social protection documents elsewhere in Europe. These type of um, hazard assessment processes that are also required, how do they couple in with this discussion of the equipment um, that needs to be provided in there as well? It's not an easy topic. We come up with a list of, okay, you need to provide explosion protection and uh, rated lighting and these sort of things, then you still have the same problem of, okay, you need to buy, provide, and purchase and install correctly these type of systems as well. So it's another piece of the puzzle. Um, we really do need to bring someone on with background in just combustible dust equipment as well to get their take. And I think I have a couple of people here, Mark, that might want to discuss this as well. So I'll, I'll reach out to them. We'll have some, we'll organize the podcast episodes moving forward on what they see with equipment certificates for I don't know, things like flameless venting, isolation devices, different um, 
a piece of equipment like that and see how that's looking. Uh, and also we talked about maybe getting RPED back on because it's been four years now since we had him on to talk about competency training and in particular people that are developing equipment and reselling equipment as well. So that's it for this episode. As Terry and I mentioned, if you have feedback, please send it to myself, chris at dustsafetyscience.com. We will have Terry's contact information in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 221. This episode, we also have links to ECM out of Italy and this um, list of invalid certificates that they published. And uh, that's where you can find more about the podcast as well. So if you have a safe and productive week ahead, I want to say thank you for listening. I appreciate everything you're doing. Interest handling combustible dust, making them safer with the work they do every day. Keep it up out there. Thank you.